Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, it's shaping up to be a very merry cryptomus with Bitcoin and Ethereum soaring in value. Will the surge continue in 2024 with the SEC poised to approve the first ever spot Bitcoin ETF? I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Caroline Hepke in London, where we're thinking about the lessons learned from the past year in stocks. I'm Doug Krisner, looking at the odds for a better gaming business in Macau for 2024. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where we're reflecting on a wild year in Congress and the legislative winners and losers. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with a look at cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin, starting the year just under $17,000. Fast forward nearly 12 months later, Bitcoin is more than double, trading above 40000 Why the big rally, and will it continue? We're pleased to welcome Mike McClone. He's Senior Commodity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence and Bloomberg Markets Editor Michael Regan. Thank you both for joining us. What is behind the big rally in Bitcoin this past year, and what has changed, if anything? Hey, Tom. Well, the potential that U.S. is going to be um, launching Bitcoin ETFs starting on the, the date's really January 10th. But that's kind of more the micro. The market's already priced, and it's the macro, I think, that matters. Is virtually all risk assets were pretty well beat up at the end of last year, and virtually all risk assets are up this year. Bitcoin is just the riskiest. It's the highest beta, <clears throat> and it's up the most. So that's the way I look at next year. The tilt is, oh, that pendulum might swing the other way and kind of just revert a little. To me, that's the key risk, and it's the example of, you know, Bitcoin's up 160% this year, and, and the Nasdaq's up about 53%. And on a volatility weighted basis, that's just about what Bitcoin should be up. And, and Michael Regan, so it's kind of mirrored the rise in equities this past year? Yeah, mirrored it and really outdone it. Yeah, you know, Mike's talking about the beta in the market, which is kind of a technical term for if, you know, one asset is moving 1%, uh, a higher beta asset uh, might move 2% or 3%. So, you know, Bitcoin just uh, more a beneficiary of this return in risk appetites uh, than the equity market. Uh, even both are really just putting in tremendous rebounds this year. And uh, as Michael alluded to, with the SEC expected to approve January 10th, the spot Bitcoin ETF, this could change everything. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the thinking. You know, the idea is that there are a lot of uh, investors and financial advisors out there who were reluctant to invest in crypto because they didn't quite trust all the crypto native platforms. Uh, FTX, <laughs> obviously, giving the best example of that when it collapsed uh, last year. So, uh, you know, the thinking is now that it's available in an ETF, uh, you can buy it from your traditional brokerage, uh, whoever that is that you deal with. Uh, and there's a little bit more safety there involved. Um, now, uh, you know, to Mike's point, I think the question is: is all that priced into the market already for the price of Bitcoin, and then some? You know, is it a is it a sell the news event? And it's really hard to predict that um, when the CTF one and if it is actually uh, approved. Um, but you know, I think the general thinking is that even if a, even if investors allocate a tiny percent of their entire portfolio, uh, say 1% or 2% to crypto, you know, that's going to add up to uh, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars, potentially. So um, the optimism is that these ETFs will be a big hit, and that perhaps while they might not rally, Bitcoin might not rally the way it did this year uh, once they're introduced, that it, it will be a support going forward in the market. Um, uh, but to Mike's point, you know, this market rallied so hard this year uh, that it would be sort of natural to expect a little bit of a, a pullback, a correction from that. So what do you think? And Mike McClone, I'll address this to you. Why the change of heart from Gary Gensler, federal regulators, about now going forward with this? Oh, the good check and balances of, of courts. Uh, <laughs> one, one example was um, Coinbase and GBTC, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. They won um, their, their actions in courts. There's been some other ones, but it's um, that pendulum. It's just a wonderful check and balance of our system. You might have people push back on this rapidly advancing technology, but then people push forward, and that's what's happening. So I, I think what Michael pointed out is the key thing is there is just so much optimism and expectation. Okay, the ETFs are going to be launched. The key thing we like to say about it is that when we launched the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index in 2018, this was the goal, to get ETFs tracking cryptos and most likely a broad index. And we're just so far behind. Now, they happen, they, they already exist in other countries. The U.S. is just catching up. But as Michael mentioned, it's the key thing that matters. The point I'm worried about is what it's doing for the space is since futures were launched in Bitcoin in 2017, volatility is getting squashed. So what's happening is this teenager or this child asset is becoming an adult rapidly, and ETFs are going to push into the adult space really fast, meaning you cannot expect those very big returns we've had in the past when it was trading at a volatility of 100 to 200%, and now the volatility is around 30%. It's the lowest ever. That's a 260-day measure or an annual measure. And the thing is, it's still much higher volatility than stock market and gold, and that's where I think people are I'm, I'm worried about. If we do get that normal reversion in the stock market um, next year, Bitcoin, the key thing about Bitcoin, it's trades 24-7. It's one of the most significant leading indicators on the planet. It might lead that way down. That's why I look at it as, yes, there's always going to be small pullbacks. I'm looking at the pendulum for next year swinging more towards reversion as the best. Maybe we've already seen the best to buy the rumor in the markets. Michael? 
Yeah, uh, and that volatility issue uh, is a fascinating one to unpack because you know that's something these traders like. You know, your t- typical buy and hold investor uh, might not love a lot of vol- volatility in their portfolio, but uh, crypto investors—that's that's their bread and butter, right? So, uh, you know, regardless of what Bitcoin does, um, it's fascinating to look at some some of the other areas of crypto market and what's going on. Uh, I'll give you an example: Solana uh, is the big star of the industry this year. They're native token soul is up like 800%. Um, and the thinking there is this is a blockchain uh, that's much faster and cheaper to run transactions on than uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum. So a lot of these really crazy sort of meme coins and NFTs and all that very, very speculative and extra risky. I mean, all of crypto is risky, but this stuff is super ultra risky. Um, has really found a home on uh, that blockchain and Avalanche. Um, so, you know, the market is kind of, um, I think to Mike's point, there's a potential for sort of a a fork in the road uh, where Bitcoin becomes more of the mainstream, uh, lower volatility uh, side of the market. Um, but then you still have this sort of more wild west, wildly volatile and speculative angle of the market where all the true crypto, uh, you know, uh, guys who like to trade and really actively go long, go short, uh, will be happy to, to sort of move over to that side of the market. Well, it, it seems also there are always new ones, ones happening now you've never even heard of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so easy to create a new coin. You can basically copy the code from the last one, change a few uh, variables in it, give it a new name, and you're off to the races. And then it's you know a, a matter of uh, you know how strongly can you market it and pump it up and get other people excited about it. Uh, it's kind of a crazy scheme, but that that is sort of the nature of the market these days. <laughs> oh, it's a crazy scheme. <laughs> now, uh, Mike McGlone, I want to talk about something I know you have spoken about, referring to. Bitcoin as a form of digital gold. What do you mean? Why is that? And what do you mean? It really struck me when I was in Hong Kong in 2018 visiting colleagues and almost everybody I met there when they were talking about mainland this and mainland that. And that was a significant bear market cryptos. Yet there was one bull market, and that was the market capitalization of the number one stable coin called Tether. And the key thing that really struck me is now, on a global basis, for the first time in history, everybody on the planet with an iPhone, which you can get now, a phone in India now for 12 bucks, has access to a stable currency or something more like digital, like Bitcoin, through their digital assistant or their phones. And the key thing I like to say about Bitcoin is, in terms of gold, is your average, you ask your average 30-something person or someone like the age of my kids, they don't really care about gold. And that, to me, is like to say, is if you are in the gold space, you're bullish gold, I'm bullish gold, you're, in, you're involved in gold, it's kind of, you have to have some um, consideration of the world going digital and Bitcoin being in that space. So to me, it has to have some Bitcoin in that space. Now, how much you put in there is subject, but the world is going digital and it's just a better way to transact. But one thing I really want to touch on, it's happening in this space, as Michael alluded to a little bit with Solana, is proliferation of stable coins. This technology allows everybody on the planet to get access to the dollar. Now, they call them stable coins. I call them crypto dollars because they all track the dollar. And the AUM on these crypto dollars now are almost about $125 billion. Um, and that's something that's just happening more and more. And it's because the technology allows everybody in the world to get access to this, particularly when you live in a country with a melting currency, which most are in the long term. It's just the dollar is the, most, the strongest. And just in terms of 
Bitcoin. To me, it's digital gold versus versus regular gold, analog gold. You probably should put them together. And then in the space, what's significant is just the, the technology is allowing people to get to the dollar. And what's really, it's called basically uh, tokenization. What's next in tokenization through the technology? And a lot of people I hear say are U.S. Treasuries. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot to look forward to. Our thanks to Mike McGlone, Senior Commodity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, and Bloomberg Markets Editor Michael Regan. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, runaway inflation, rate hikes, job cuts, and more. What lessons have we learned from this past year? I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, the big winners in this year's Do Nothing Congress. But first, 2023 has been a year of inflation, rate debates, job cuts, geopolitical tensions. We'll look back at 2023 through a number of different lenses and ask what lessons can be learned from the past year and how they can help us navigate the next 12 months. For more, let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak anchor Caroline Hepker. Some might be asking what 2024 could possibly throw at markets after a year packed with every challenge in the book. Again, as the year draws to a close, investors have been hit with a curveball, attacks on merchant ships in the Red Sea threatening to destabilise the global economy. There's also been a final surprise in the UK this week's CPI data uh, showing that inflation slowed to 3.9%. Now, that was a bigger drop than had been originally forecast. No one saw it coming, including Blue Bloomberg's Markets Today reporter, Dave Goodman. Here's his reaction. Pretty stunning reading, wasn't it? I sit next to uh, Connor, who does our squawk on, on Bloomberg, and I think everyone heard me shout wow loudly <laughs> in the background as he, as he was reading out to people. Um, 3.9%. No one, we, 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 Bloomberg had surveyed 35 economists. Not one of them saw a reading below 4.2%. Mm. So that, that kind of shows you how much of a, of a shock this is. In terms of a downward surprise, it's the, it's the biggest since February 2021. That was Bloomberg's David Goodman there. So what are the takeaways then from an unforgettable year for global equities? We asked Bloomberg's stocks guru, our director of research, Tim Craighead, to help us make sense of it all, starting by asking him his biggest lesson from the past year in stocks. Here's what he had to say. I guess one thing that really comes to mind is that composition matters. If, if you look at the nature of the markets that have worked in Europe or think about Europe versus the U.S., it really does boil down to composition. Uh, the SMI uh, has been awful, basically because of four stocks. 
Roche, Novartis, Nestle, and uh, Richemont. If you take mm-hmm. those out, that market's up 21%. It's equal to the U.S. If you look at Europe, it looks awful at up 12% versus the U.S., up 21%. But if you look at the Eurostox 50, which is concentrated into some of the biggest important names in the in the eurozone it's up 19 percent it's let's call it roughly in line it's the uk and switzerland that have been awful for europe and taking the whole index if you look at the stock 600 down so composition really does matter Hmm. so then how do you think about europe and how it will fare against the united states looking to next year yeah well Two things here come immediately to mind. One is clearly the U.S. has got an awful lot more TMT, and that's been a huge driver of the rally that we've seen since um, uh, uh, the October lows. Mm. Uh, they tend to be higher duration in terms of longer-term cash flow growth, if you get into the math, which makes them more sensitive to interest rate changes as well as longer-term secular growth drivers. So that is a big difference in the last six weeks. That's really mattered. Um, it, it brings up what happens from here, and we can talk a little bit more about that from the standpoint of how much the market is now baked in central bank pivots, which I think you know is definitely the case across both continents, but probably even more so in the US. Um, the second thing is China. Uh, China is a big deal for Europe. As call it four hundred and sixty billion dollars and a billion euros in revenue across eighty big companies in Europe. Uh, that's that's a lot of exposure. It's roughly thirty percent of the market index that have got that's got China exposure. That's a tough first half comparison. I, I think there's a tale of two halves for European markets looking into two thousand twenty-four. Um, tough earnings to begin with. Uh, but maybe an interesting second half looking towards uh, 2025. So there's loads to unpack there, but I just want to hone in on what you said about the UK. When do you think people will start deciding that Britain's cheap and it's a bargain and it's time to buy? Uh, Never. Um, (laughs) Why? (laughs) uh, So it is cheap, but it's cheap for a reason, and that goes back to the composition issue. Um, It's got a bunch of banks. Banks tend to trade cheap relative to a lot of other sectors. It's got a heavy, heavy dose of oil and metals and mining. Uh, Those are contra to earnings. And right now we're still at relatively high earnings. So you're at relatively low valuations. The only time you're going to see revaluation in those is when you have a down cycle in the commodity prices that really depresses earnings and inflates multiples. Um, But as you look at it's interesting if you look over a two-year period the footsies actually outperformed both the euro stocks and the s p 500 take a look at that going back to january 1 2022 and it's because it was relatively flat and when we had downdrafts in the market the footsie totally outperformed so if you're concerned for whatever reason tactically at certain points in time the footsie is a safe haven if you're looking for juice um you know, the FTSE's global defensives uh, don't give you that, especially the pound's a little bit stronger. Uh, depends on what you think about commodity markets. It's got a lot of exposure there, but right now those are relatively depressed. And it's got a heavy dose in financials where margins are very inflated. And if you think we're going to have a central bank pivot, mm. that, that puts those margins at risk a little bit of deflating. 
So how do we think about then the, the central bank pivots? I mean, we've been slower in pricing in the potential of interest rate cuts on the Bank of England than we have for the ECB and the Fed, but it is there. And if you think about the GDP data that some are concerned about, the stagnation slash recession story for the UK, you know, how, how do you think about yeah. the pivot? So, so between now and, say, year-end 2024, I think it's a positive backdrop. And it's good for the FTSE, and it's going to be good for the European markets, um, because both central banks are, humble opinion, likely to either be pivoting or there's a lot more visibility on that progress continuing into 2025. Um, the, The concern, I suppose, right now is that we've had in all markets such a big discounting of a pivot in the past six weeks that... Uh, you know, just technically, we're getting a little bit extended. And, you know, does that balk a little bit, especially for the UK market um, and Europe, as we get into January, February and have to face fourth quarter earnings that are probably going to be similar to third quarter, where, uh, yeah, they were somewhat resilient, but we saw negative revisions. And we think you could see a bit more on the negative revision front. So first quarter, I think, is a little dicey, especially at these elevated market levels. But an interesting second half of the year. My thanks there to Bloomberg's Director of Research, Tim Craighead. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Thanks, Caroline. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look at how Macau's casino industry has weathered the challenges of a global pandemic and a slow economic recovery in China. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM 121, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. After a devastating pandemic and a prolonged economic slowdown in China, how has Macau's casino and gaming business recovered? For more, we go to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host 
Doug Krisner. Tom, the major casinos in Macau are still in the process of recovering after being hard hit by the pandemic, obviously, when China closed its borders. Despite the sluggishness of the overall Chinese economy, though, many analysts have a positive outlook for Macau as we approach the new year. The city, if you didn't know, is the world's largest gambling center by revenue. For a closer look at gaming in Macau, let's bring in Bloomberg's Angela Han Lee, gaming and hospitality analyst for the APAC at Bloomberg Intelligence. It's a pleasure to have the chance to chat with you. And I know that in peak times, Macau gets a lot of activity during the Lunar New Year festivities and the Golden Week holiday in October. But since the Christmas holiday is upon us and New Year's is just around the corner, Angela, I'm curious, will these holidays produce any traffic in a meaningful way for the casinos? Yes, uh, I think that in the past, the Lunar New Year and October Golden Week were the major events for Macau casinos because that's basically where mainland China has the longest holidays. But now I think uh, it's a bit different because we are having more young people who likes to celebrate Christmas. And also given that the uh, this consumption downgrade trend, people cannot travel too far. That's why they prefer to go make a short haul trips. And Macau is one of the popular places because it's outside mainland China, but still very attractive. So, uh, and also because the Macau's integrity resorts now have much more amenities. They are hosting a lot of concerts and also events. So you see that some TV stations of China is hosting some year-end concerts and events in Macau as well. So that is going to also... Uh, bring more traffic from mailing Chinese people. So did the gaming companies use the opportunity of a, a decline in business during the pandemic to really reinvest and, and put some of these new venues in place so that hopefully when things emerged from the pandemic that a lot of new venues would be in place for people to take advantage of? Yes, there are some new uh, casinos that opened during the pandemic, say SJM's Grand Lisboa Palace. And recently, Galaxy Macau also expanded Phase 3. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's new capacity, and this new capacity can bring much more traffic because in the past, those hotel rooms were only for big rollers. But now there are much more hotel rooms in Macau. So that's why like uh, some young people can also pay for the hotel bills by themselves and stay in Macau. So I think uh, the whole Macau is changing towards this type of mass uh, leisure travel thing rather than pure gambling thing. So younger people, I understand. What about for the family? If you have even younger children, is it a good destination? True. If you go to Macau, you will find some fancy like uh, facilities. Say in Galaxy Macau, there are places like uh, you know artificial beach that you can go and enjoy with your kids. And also there is a water park in Studio City Phase 2. And you also see many other events and shows that you can go with kids. So Macau is transforming. Uh, I would say mass gaming revenue is something with coming with a higher profit margin. So I guess that also benefits uh, Macau casinos to achieve uh, EBITDA improvement faster than gaming revenue. So I suggested that uh, many analysts have upgraded their opinion of uh, 2024 in terms of outlook for revenue. What is driving a lot of this optimism? If they say surpassed so the pre-pandemic numbers by 10%, it's about the mass gaming revenue, meaning the uh, people who go and gamble with their own cash, excluding the gaming uh, revenue coming from credit gamblers. But this is a major driver for Macau casinos. That makes sense. And the major reason is, again, because of the hotel inventory has increased in Macau. 
making like uh, people to be like uh, hotel rooms are much more affordable for some people as well. So I think that's one thing. The other is because the people who used to travel long haul don't go that far because it's too expensive for them. So they prefer coming to Macau. So Macau is kind of benefiting from this consumption downgrade trade in China too. I'm wondering if the government has been involved in helping to promote the industry from countries like South Korea, Malaysia, Philippines, and Singapore. Has there been an active campaign to try to get tourists from those jurisdictions to come to Macau? I think uh, that's the trend as well. So to start with, I would say Macau's high roller business, which means credit gamblers, you know, junket business has been under crackdown. So some people has been who used to play in Macau with credit facilitated by underground banks in China are now switching to like cash gamblers. That is also a type of thing that Macau and mainland government is urging those players and the whole industry to become much more transparent. That's one thing. The other is that, you know, like uh, there are a lot of crackdowns going on regarding some human trafficking and some organized crimes in Southeast Asia. You may also have seen some news saying that like China has sent their own military forces to crack down those organized crimes in Myanmar. So all, all those things together, I think uh, even government and even some like uh, media in China are kind of promoting that, you know, like uh, be more careful when you travel out and try to be try to be like uh, stay in safe places. Angela, we've touched on two things, and I'm wondering whether there's a connection. The interest in attracting young people to a lot of these casinos, and you're talking about the extent to which these gaming companies are more reliant on cash rather than credit. And I'm wondering whether young people now are using the latest technology when they walk into these gaming facilities so they're able to take their phone and essentially gamble using the phone. Is that, is that happening? Um, you are not allowed to use phone when you're gambling. You, if you take out your phone to take pictures, uh, they, will, they will come and say, like, uh, don't take pictures of the casinos. That's about privacy thing and also because they want to prevent this phone gambling. They don't want people to, uh, to do the video streaming with the gaming tables because that is allowing another kind of proxy gambling online. That used to happen more like uh, in other parts of the world, like uh, in uh, Philippines, which, was, which used to be legal. In Macau, it has been illegal for a long time. Like for the past, I think, at least in my memory, should be more than seven years. So Macau, Macau's gaming business is really about um, in-person gambling thing rather than online streaming. If you do online stream, you will get caught. But what about using new forms of uh, money technology? I'm not necessarily saying a cryptocurrency, but are there technological platforms that you might have on your phone where you could use the phone just in a moment to transfer money at the casino so that you could get cash in hand and then go to a table and, and play? So one to start with is that you know, China has some limit if you want to withdraw money offshore. If you are withdrawing the money which is under the like a, a loud amount, then you obviously can do through union pay. But if you want to do more than a loud amount, then you have to do something else, which is like a WeChat or something else that, you know, like some underground banks will facilitate. So at the end, what Macau will do is that Macau casinos will try to make money from more people who spend less than before. I'm wondering how the office of the chief executive in Macau, how that office is expressing uh, a view on, on the business, whether or not uh, the office of the chief executive is as optimistic as many of the analysts that we've been talking about. He is also optimistic, and government is always trying to express that the most important is promoting non-gaming business. And then 
they, they don't like gaming business, but uh, from casino operator's perspective, casino business is the best business with better ROI. So there is some struggle over there, but we come to a point that you know casino operators now understand that if they want to draw more traffic and keep players longer, they should have more non-gaming amenities to people uh, to let people use. So on that sense, I believe uh, casino operators will keep investing in non-gaming uh, amenities, including hotel rooms on other like uh, you know uh, say other retail shops or even like a concert. There are so many concerts going on and this is driving so much traffic. They did like a black pink uh, in the middle of this year and Bruno Mars is also coming like next year. They also have like uh, some big Canton pop stars like uh, uh, Jackie Chung as well like uh, this year. Everyone is just trying to bring more people to the property so that they can generate more gaming and non-gaming revenue. Angela, you've given us a lot of very good information. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. That is Angela Han Lee, Gaming and Hospitality Analyst for the APAC at Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm Doug Krisner in New York, and you can catch Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Doug. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the U.S. Congress this past year passing the fewest laws in decades. How did that benefit some of the biggest players on Wall Street? I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Turmoil this year in the 118th Congress, which went through several House speakers, even voted out one of its own members. While lawmakers did little to actually govern, that meant good news for banks, tech giants, and big pharma. And for more, let's head to our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, Tom, Congress is officially done for 2023, and what a year it was. Started off with 15 rounds of votes to elect Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, continued on to a debt ceiling fight, multiple almost shutdowns, the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, the election of a new Speaker, Mike Johnson, the expulsion of New York Congressman George Santos. And for all of the drama in the headlines, outside of major must-pass legislation that barely squeaked through... What was actually accomplished and who were the winners and losers within that? Megan Scully, who leads Bloomberg's congressional coverage, took a closer look at that exact question and is joining me now with the answer. So, Megan, there were winners this Mm -hmm. year. 
Uh, there were, largely thanks to inaction on Congress's part, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, how lobbyists make their money in Washington is is trying to prevent legislation from happening more times than not. So you had big winners such as banks um, and the tech industry uh, certainly walked away from this year without um, any new stringent regulations placed against them. Railroad industry as well, you know, following the the East Palestine disaster, mm. uh, the real push to to enact new uh, reforms for that industry fell by the wayside amid you know partisan fighting on Capitol Hill. So when we think about legislation that didn't pass. Often, you know, legislation can be viewed as a threat to industries in some senses. You mentioned banks and the railroads. But there also were a few industries that were actually pushing for legislation to get through that actually hasn't fully come through yet, like crypto. crypto yeah. You had a couple bills pass out of House Financial Services, of course, helmed by uh, Chair Patrick McHenry, and yet didn't get anywhere in 2023 beyond that. So in that sense, I guess it's a loss that the bills didn't happen. Yes, there are occasions, you know, certainly in the semiconductor industry as mm. well, um, and, and new regulations on China, you know, that China Hawks tried to push through at the end of the year. And that fell by the wayside. Those were certainly all losers this year. Perhaps the biggest loser, um, we, we sort of reversed it on our list, um, but was Ukraine, which does mm-hmm. not is walking away without um, aid yet. Uh, Congress is going to come back to that early January when they return. Um, you know, on our list, we made that Putin certainly is walking away with some bragging rights this year, um, or at least attempting to use congressional inaction to, to say that this demonstrates uh, a weakening resolve uh, in the U.S. to fund. Ukraine in this war. So you mentioned this is something they're going to have to come back to. Of course, that's not the only big mm-hmm. item they're going to have to deal with very early on in the year. And when you're dealing with so much big picture must deal with stuff, does all of these other legislative efforts, you know, targeted at specific industries, other bills just kind of fall to the wayside again? Is that what we're in for in 2024? So if you look at the last several Congresses, uh, the first year of a Congress, which was 2023, doesn't tend to have much legislative action. Um, This one was unusually low. There were only 22 bills as of uh, December 19th that were passed. Maybe some more will be enacted, you know, before the end of the year. Um, and, And usually that number's in the 70s or 80s. We will see some a flurry of activity next year, um, even though it's an election year. Probably some of the these pieces of legislation getting attached to other bills, um, be it spending bills or the the annual defense authorization bill that somehow managed to squeak through <laughs> at the end of each year. Um, so, so we will. There is another hope. Legislation doesn't expire at the end of a year; it expires at the end of a Congress. So they do have a second chance to get this done. Bloomberg Congressional Team Leader Megan Scully, thank you so much as always. And Tom, I guess we'll see what they can do in 2024. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on the markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.